Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. So roller coasters were never really my favorite thing, but I used to love the spinny rides at amusement parks. As a kid, you would always find me on the teacup ride, spinning that cart around as fast as I could. Or, you know, those big rides that spin and swing at the same time. Yeah, count me in. A few years ago on a youth group trip to Six Flags, I excitedly recruited a bunch of kids to go with me on this ride. (laughs) The Spin Sanity. And we had just started moving when I had the awful realization that I was no longer a spinny ride person. (laughs) All was not right in my world. My stomach was alternating between my toes and my throat, and I was very aware of what I had had for breakfast that morning. (laughs) And when I wasn't praying for survival, I was promising myself that as soon as the ride stopped, I would be fine. This feeling would go away, all back to normal but that is not what happened. Besides feeling miserable, and so I'm told kind of an odd shade of gray for the rest of the day, I lay on my bed that night reliving that ride over and over again. The room spun around me, and if I closed my eyes, the room kept spinning. The effects of that ride stayed with me a lot longer than I expected, and definitely longer than I would have liked. Suffice it to say, at amusement parks, I am now quite content to be the designated bag holder. (laughs) Since March of 2020, our world has been continuously shaken up, turned upside down, and spun around by a global pandemic, political polarization, racial violence, school shootings, and war, just to name a few. Perhaps today you feel that the ride will soon come to a stop and you will step off feeling fine. Perhaps you are lying on the bed and the world is still spinning. The reality is that every aspect of our day-to-day lives has felt the effects of these roller coaster years. Whether we care to admit it or not, our experiences have been shaped and are shaping us in some way. But if you know me well, you hear me say often that nothing is new under the sun. And I say it because I believe it's great news. It gives me hope. Rather than bemoaning circumstances as unprecedented or change as loss, it reminds me that God has seen it all before and sustained his people through all of it. With hindsight, we can trace the constant thread of God's faithfulness through history And in the midst of trial and uncertainty, that is what gives us confidence. Nothing is wasted. He has worked good from even the darkest of times. And so with that lens, today we are going to look at Acts chapter 1. It's a moment when the world of Jesus' first disciples was just as shaken up, turned upside down, and spun around as ours. And we're going to learn from what they did in their moment of disequilibrium, trying to wrap their heads around what had just happened while also looking towards an uncertain future. So let's pray. 
God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts bring glory to you. Speak, Lord, we are your servants and we are listening. We want to be more like you, Jesus. Amen. So Act chapter one begins with the subtitle, The Story Continues. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John, John the Baptist, baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. The book of Acts is written by Luke. He was a doctor, he was one of the Apostle Paul's traveling buddies, and he was a good observer who kept detailed records. A wealthy Greek man named Theophilus paid Luke to compile eyewitness accounts of the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus because Theophilus wanted to know more about this man, Jesus, who they called the Messiah. The Gospel of Luke is Luke's first book, and Acts is the sequel. They are meant to be read together. Now, we often call it the Acts of the Apostles, but really we should call it the Acts of Jesus, part two, because Luke is telling us with his opening line that the whole book is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach in and through his followers. The disciples did not see themselves as beginning a new work, as starting with a blank slate, but continuing the work that Jesus had taught and modeled for them. There were 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his return to heaven, and it says that during those 40 days, he spent quality time with his disciples. He sat and ate and talked with them about what he had always been talking to them about, the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives them the promise of a gift that he basically says is going to blow their minds. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I imagine the disciples thinking, cool, cool, no idea what that is. (laughs) Does it come with a sword? like little kids who are more fascinated, or given a new toy to play with, but are actually more fascinated by the box that it came in. The disciples miss what Jesus is telling them because they're stuck on an idea of old, that the Messiah's coming meant that they would no longer be under the rule of the Romans. So they ask a logistical when, what, how question. Lord, at this time, are you going to free Israel and restore our kingdom? 
We can hear their excitement and their deep longing. And that longing is real and valid. They have been a ruled people for a long time. But notice how Jesus answers them. The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. He doesn't say it's not going to happen. He says that the plan of everything being made right and of all hopes being fulfilled is for God to know and then to find out. And instead, he redirects them to the promise and the purpose of the moment. Now, I am a process person. I really like plans. I like to know what is happening, when it's happening, and how it's happening. And to my great frustration, I have learned that a roadmap is almost never how God interacts with me. Despite my desire to plan for the future, God never gives me more than one step in front of me. I'm rarely able to answer the question, where do you see yourself in 10 years, with much clarity, because God is constantly inviting me to live fully present in the moment that he has called me to. And the good news is that he has never failed to be present in that moment with me. So when the temptation comes to start trying to map out the future, I've had to preach to myself on a regular basis, be faithful to what's in front of you. Maybe you are also asking God when, what, and how questions. Maybe you are asking, when will the frustration of continuous change be over? How are we going to get things back to the way they were before? It's okay to ask. Those questions often express the deep longings of our hearts. And God says throughout his word that he longs for us to bring those desires to him. Those questions ultimately reflect our longing for the day when Jesus returns and all things are made whole and right. It's a good hope, but a hope that we don't know when it will be fulfilled. That plan belongs to God. But in the midst of uncertain in-between moments, like the disciples, Jesus calls us to be faithful to what is in front of us. To be faithful to the moment that we are in, not the moment that we wish we were in. So what did the disciples do with the moment that they were in? Well, Acts chapter one continues. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the upper upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. 
This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. It was a diverse group that gathered in that upper room. Now, some of their differences were really clear. I mean, had the Jewish fishermen, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, really come to accept Matthew, who collected taxes from them for the Romans? Perhaps Mary Magdalene was there. Had the 12 disciples really made peace with the presence of a woman in Jesus' inner circle, especially one who had had demons cast out of her? Perhaps even Nicodemus, the Pharisee, or Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who gave his tomb to bury Jesus, were there. Diverse. But I also imagine they were diverse in where they were emotionally, all at different places in processing the events of the last few weeks. Some may have just been full of sadness at the loss of Jesus' presence with them. Some terrified at suffering the same fate as Jesus at the hands of the Romans and Jewish religious leaders. Some overwhelmed and exhausted by the whirlwind of events. Some probably so pumped up by Jesus' resurrection and great commission that they were chomping at the bit and ready to go. People with all different stories and different points of readiness and ideas for the future. Imagine the grace they needed to have with each other. The First Nations version of the New Testament puts verse 15 this way. The group had grown into one big family, about 120 of them, all who trusted in Jesus, that he was the chosen one. Diverse, but when gathered in that room, they were united in prayer and trust in Jesus alone. And they were also united in loss. Though feelings of anger and betrayal were probably running pretty high, they were also grieving the loss of their friend and companion, Judas. Scripture says that the news had spread all over Jerusalem that Judas bought a field with the money the religious leaders gave him to betray Jesus, and also that he had died there in that field. Judas had been a trusted member of their community they had lived and traveled with him for three years. And it is so important that as they waited, Peter's first task in his speech about their next steps was to first name their grief and acknowledge how their community was different now. Peter continues, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O oh Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. So the next step the followers of Jesus took in their time in the upper room was to both identify a need and identify their resources. 
The Old Testament prophecy about Judas' betrayal said that someone was to take his place amongst the 12 disciples. And that person needed to be an eyewitness to Jesus' teaching, ministry, death, and resurrection. So from amongst their crew, they identified Justice and Matthias as meeting those requirements. But they didn't take a vote or hold interviews to vet these guys. Instead, they surrendered the choice to God and directly sought his input. I mean, listen to how active and full of trust their prayer is. Lord, show us which of these men you have chosen. Now, the process of casting lots seems pretty foreign to us today, but it's seen throughout our Bibles. Scripture tells us that the Romans who crucified Jesus cast lots for his clothes as he hung on the cross. Now, they were gambling. But what the disciples did here was not leaving things up to chance, quite the opposite. It was a centuries-old Jewish method to discern God's will. They believed that casting lots was a way that God our living, active, present God was involved in and directed their decisions tangibly. Now to some, these steps of evaluation and prayer may not seem like action. There may have been some in that room who were impatient, who may have said that the work of choosing a replacement for Judas wasn't the work that Jesus had called them to. They would have been anxious to get out on the road, to go to the ends of the earth right then to tell people about Jesus. But in God's great wisdom and care for his people, he instructed them to take these 10 days, this time of waiting for an uncertain future, to process and prepare. They took time to heal, to actively place their trust in God for every decision, and seek his guidance. This discerning, culture-making work amongst them was critical. It was vital in order for them to be ready for the moment that was to come. A moment that they truly could not have imagined. They could not have imagined what would happen when the Holy Spirit filled them on Pentecost Sunday. All of them were launched onto the front lines of the mission that Jesus spoke of. The love of God for all people revealed in Jesus began to spread like wildfire around the known world in the face of terrible, persistent persecution of Jesus' followers. It mattered that they filled Judas' spot so that their community was operating at full strength for the work and the challenge that was to come. It mattered that this person was an eyewitness to Jesus' life so that he could share with enthusiasm and accuracy what was most important to Jesus. Filling Judas' spot on the team with God's choice mattered because God would work through this community, especially the 12 disciples, in mighty, history-changing ways. Now, even the most spontaneous would not set out to hike Mount Washington wearing flip-flops. No. The tallest peak in the White Mountains is a challenge that we would absolutely prepare for. At the very least, we would bring the right stuff with us on the day of. The right shoes, the right clothes, water, snacks, etc. 
But if we wanted to engage fully in the experience, our preparation would begin long before the day of. We would read up on the different routes to the summit. Washington is home to some of the world's worst weather, so we would spend time looking at predictions for our anticipated expedition. We would find someone to hike with us for safety. We would make sure that our bodies were trained for the strenuous seven miles and 6,000 feet of elevation. The hike is the point. But you can't separate the preparation before the trailhead from the end result of standing on the summit. Preparation is often slow work, but it does not mean that we are not at work. Preparation takes time, but we are always better for it. The disciples' preparation in the upper room was certainly not as exciting or as glamorous as tongues of fire and 3,000 new believers on Pentecost Sunday. But their preparation for that moment, the unknown moment, was the very definition of being faithful to what was in front of them. Being in process makes us antsy. It's a challenging tension to maintain, so we rush to resolve it as soon as possible. This winter, my neighbor broke her arm while ice skating with her granddaughter. And six weeks into wearing her cast, she got the news that the healing was going slowly and she would need to wear it a bit longer. In frustration one day, she said, I just want to rip this thing off my arm. And her daughter yells from inside the house, don't rush it. The last thing you want to do is struggle because it doesn't heal properly. Friends, over the last three years, we have become increasingly aware of the brokenness of our world. It's inconvenient, it's disorienting, it's frustrating, exhausting, and we want it to go away. It's so tempting to try to skip over the challenge and the instability because we are uncomfortable with the feeling of being in process. This moment in our world, in our church, and in our hearts is very much like the Acts 1 moment for the disciples. We are coming from a long and pivotal experience. We are looking towards a future that we can't see clearly. But most importantly, we are invited into a moment of preparation in the presence of our living and good God. And as we prepare for the unknown, God promises that we will find him when we seek him and his kingdom with our whole surrendered hearts. We are in process. One of my favorite poems comes from a prayer book by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a French priest, scientist, and theologian. I'll read just an excerpt for you, and I pray it is an invitation and an encouragement for you. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability. 
and that may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Don't try to force them on, as though you could be today what time will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. Let's pray. Father God, we want to know, we want to understand, and the not knowing is hard. Hear the longing of our hearts for the day you will return and make all things right, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, show us this week the moments that you are inviting us into. Direct our steps and focus our hearts. Help us to be fully present in this moment of being in process. We believe that you have and will lead us. Jesus, we love and trust you above all others. In your holy name we pray, amen.